Welcome back to the Zero Hour, brought to you by Safeguard Cyber. I'm George Comedy. I'm Ashley Stone. And today we have a very, very special guest indeed. The one, the only... Miko Hyponen. Yes, a man who needs no introduction in cybersecurity circles. He is the chief research officer at F-Secure and has been uh, for well over two decades. He is a regular keynote speaker at Black Hat, um, very popular on the TED circuit, and generally all-around cybersecurity badass. We talk with him about the future of cyber. Yes, we also touch on 5G and the interconnectedness of things and what that entails for security. And of course, no conversation would be complete if we didn't talk about pinball with Miko. Right. Um, but enough of us. Let's get straight into it with Miko Hyponen. Hello, Miko. Hello, George. Hello. We also have Ashley here. Hi. Hello there. Um, thank you for taking the time. I know it's uh, getting on into the evening in Helsinki, but we appreciate it. Well, the day is getting longer. You know, the sun... Uh, I actually, let me... I actually want to double check. When does the sun go down? I have a nice app for that. It says it goes down quarter to 9 p.m. Oh, so. right. You are oh, close that is to a that's right. long the northern day. latitude. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's changing right now very quickly. So, yeah, the day is getting like five minutes longer every day. Okay. Wow. Yes, that's more dramatic than, than here. Yes. Um, yeah. Cool. Okay. Well, thanks for taking the time. We will we'll try to, to move quickly. Okay. So, we'll open with uh, some light conversation about cyber warfare. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, so I think in in the past, um, you were quite hesitant to use the term cyber war. Uh, I think appropriately more hesitant to use it than it was sort of being bandied about early on. However, uh, in your Black Hat Asia keynote earlier this year, um, you were talking about how the implications of the cyber domain make it um, a little bit more dangerous than sort of a hot or kinetic battlefield because, as you said, for example, nuclear arms is a deterrent. Everyone knows what you have in terms of conventional warfare, but there is less visibility when it comes to cyber capabilities. So given um, sort of new developments and what we've seen in terms of cyber capabilities lately, uh, how do you feel about that using the term cyber warfare more commonly now? Hmm. I was never a fan of the word cyber to begin with, but I guess, I guess I've changed my mind by now. I mean, we do need a word which somehow describes this new world of conflict and war where this conflict is not fought with traditional kinetic weapons. So in my book, cyber, it's a new domain for for conflict, it's a new domain for war, and technology has always shaped wars and conflicts around us. And from, from the very beginning, if you look at the kind of wars we used to have, you know, a thousand years ago, you know, Games of Thrones, that kind of stuff. It's it's swords and bow and arrow. 
until we got good enough technology to build warships and then warplanes to extend land war into sea war into air war. But even these new new innovations of of uh, you know you know battleships and 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 fighter jets that didn't take away land war. It just expands into new domains, which is what we then saw with space, with satellites and stuff. War has definitely expanded into space, and now it has expanded into cyberspace. So we have different domains and a modern conflict, like, for example, the Russia-Ukraine war right now is being fought at all of these domains at the same time. Yeah, okay. Yes, that's a an interesting way to think of it. Yes, not and I think the I think in the US we've been caught a little bit on the back foot. We've talked with some other cybersecurity experts about this because we I think the Pentagon was preparing for cyber conflict as kind of a, a distinct front or a new theater mm-hmm. of war rather than an extension of an ongoing conflict. Yeah, and it's also important to understand that this is not going to be the last domain. There will be new domains for war as well in the future, most likely decades into the future, which means whatever those new domains will be after cyber, we probably can't imagine them yet. Or if we do, it's going to sound really science fiction-like. But, you know, just to throw an idea in the air, um, how about nano warfare, which would be something like, I don't know, distributing nanobots in in um, you know drinking water or or uh, you know over the air, which will go into the bloodstream of enemy soldiers, will enter their brains and modify their thoughts. And if that sounds very science fiction like, well, you know what, cyber warfare sounded very science fiction like thirty years ago. Yes, I mean, yeah, William Gibson coined the term cyberspace in a science fiction novel in the, you know, mm-hmm. which at the time sounded like this weird um virtual reality space as we had imagined it in the in the 80s, but okay. So, well, I want to move on from the theory into what we now see in practice. So, we mm-hmm. were recently at a conference in in London and um Ottavio our CTO, whom you know, delivered a keynote on how uh, nation states are using social media as a new attack vector to infiltrate companies for long-term cyber espionage and IP Mm -hmm. theft. So, Mm -hmm. and we realized that you being in Helsinki, also uh, the history of um, conflict between Finland and Russia puts Finland in kind of a, a more precarious position um do you see an end game some way to um go on a on a stronger defense against uh nation state interference whether it's through misinformation or through active cyber espionage yeah cyber weapons are problematic weapons in the sense that um um, um whatever power cyber weapons have they don't have much deterrence power and 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 they this is crucial because big part of the power of traditional military weapons has not been in being able to use them but just just having them for deterrence purposes nuclear weapons are the perfect example nuclear weapons have been used in war two times we have tens of thousands of warheads on this planet the power of those warheads 
is not in using them. The power is in having them and making sure your enemies know that you have them. And it's really easy to tell your enemies that you have nuclear weapons. All you have to do is to do nuclear weapon testing. And then everybody will know that, yeah, those guys have nuclear weapons. Now, how do you do that with cyber weapons? Everybody's building cyber weapons. How do you get the deterrence power? How do you show your enemies what you could do with your cyber weapons? Well, you don't. We don't have public demonstrations of power in cyberspace at all. So whatever power cyber weapons have, it's not in deterrence. It's in actually using them. And to make this more complicated, cyber weapons, just like real-world weapons, rot away. They will not work forever. They have a limited life cycle, limited lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, they use vulnerabilities in, in run-of-the-mill operating systems or browsers or, or devices. And those devices and browsers and operating systems will not be in use forever. They, and, and they change. Or they get Eventually patched. Or... Exactly. The patches will fix the bugs that the exploits are trying to, to, to exploit. So so. You invest all this money to build these cyber weapons. Um, if you don't use them quickly enough, they will not work anymore. And you got no value out of them at all because you got no deterrence, unlike what you get from you know, aircraft carriers or fighter jets or nuclear weapons. And, and this almost automatically drives uh, at least some nations into being more likely to use these weapons because of all the investment they've put into them and the fact that they get no return. Um, and and I, of course, I'm not implying here that countries would start conflicts just because they would like, like to use their weapons. What I am saying is that I could see that when a uh, military has built some cyber weapon and, and it's ending its lifetime, they know it won't work for much longer, they would just pass it on to intelligence people, for example. Right. Hey, Take this, you know, it's not going to work for much longer. We're going to lose it soon enough, you know, see if you can do something with this. And that's, that's in my book, problematic, problematic already. Yeah. And, 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 and yes. And going back to their power, you know, their, the power of, of cyber weaponry is, is in the secrecy, whereas, mm-hmm. you know, uh, conventional arms is kind of a, a showboat arsenal. You, you do need to shout from the rooftops that you have certain weaponry. I've coined a term for this. I call this the fog of the cyber war. I mean, you sometimes hear about the fog of war mm-hmm. right? or, or, or how it's hard to see what's true true and not true during conflict. Well, what I mean with the term fog of the cyber war is our lack of visibility into the capabilities of nation states. Like, like we know that U.S., USA has been spending more money for longer time than any other government in both uh, both uh, cyber defense and cyber offense, and we know this because your 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 budgets are public. We can look at how much money right. you're spending and all of this. We know quite a bit of, about the the capabilities of Russia and China because they get caught all the time. So unlike USA, uh, these guys keep getting caught, and we actually see their cyber weapons. But when it goes beyond. These the biggest players. The fog gets thicker. So what is what do you think? What's the offensive cyber capability of Italy? What do you think? Yeah, that no idea. Didn't even or, actually cross my or, mind. <laughs> exactly. Or or, or or let's say Vietnam or New Zealand or you know mm-hmm. all of the all of these countries are building offensive tools. By the way, we have no idea what they are, and 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 this is this underlines what I said about about deterrence. We we do know quite a bit about. For example, what the Russians are doing, and what you said earlier about, well, I mean, geographics. 
I'm right now in Helsinki. So this is like, I'm three hours away from St. Petersburg, Russia. It's, it's right there next door. We have 1,200 miles of border with the Russians. Both my grandfathers fought the Russians in the Second World War. So obviously, from, from our location and, 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 and from, from what we do, the work we do here at F-Secure, which is based in Helsinki, we, of course, keep a close eye on the Russians just because they are right next door. But today, this game is is global and, and we have to look beyond just the obvious players because what the internet did is that it took away geography. Yes. Yeah, and, I, and also, so I think it's interesting to explore how to... Um, create a deterrence or some increase some sort of visibility so for example in 2015 when the obama administration called china out on ip theft it kind of uh, incurred something of a cost and that coupled with um you know policy agreements did seem to quote unquote deter uh Chinese APT actors for some time. And Mm -hmm. that activity has, of course, increased with a deterioration in, uh, in relations, but there, there did seem to be some sort of incurred cost if you could um, Mm -hmm. attribute attacks and and call people out. But now we're in this space where it's kind of wild west, you, you, they may be quote unquote nation states, but they're actually not attached to like military apparatus or even intelligence services. It's just kind Mm -hmm. of mercenaries for hire that go out Mm -hmm. and and do uh cyber espionage with the tacit approval of state governments Mm -hmm. that's very true and and it's it's hard to find a technology organization or technology company today which would not have close links with their governments the obvious examples are companies like huawei or zte from from china um but then again like what kind of uh, connections does, let's say, Cisco have with the U.S. government or Microsoft right. or, or any of these companies? At the very least, they have customer relationships. I do believe the U.S. federal government is the single biggest customer of Microsoft's, for mm-hmm. example. So, so there obviously are close connections of various kinds between technology companies and 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 uh, and their governments, but the game is different in China because China is not a democracy, and China is, if not the biggest, one of the big, biggest providers of technology worldwide. Right, and, and when I- you look, and when you look at, the, I think Russia and China are really interesting when you look at their potential visibility onto the rest of the world through through technology. Um, Russia is the biggest country on the planet. China is the, is the uh, biggest country on the planet by capita. Um, Russia is filled with great technology. They have these excellent technology universities, all these great mathematicians and physicists and, and programmers. And it's quite surprising when you think it like that, that, that Russia seems to be unable to create any technology that we would use. I mean, mm-hmm. can you name any Russian mobile phone makers, for example, or Russian operating systems or Russian anything? Do you use any Russian technology? I don't think so. Right. Interesting. And and then you compare it to China, and we have all these like Lenovo's and OnePlus and Xiaomi mm-hmm. and, and, and uh, whatever. You look at any phone used by any of your friends, it's filled with chips made in China. So the potential visibility China has on the rest of the internet is completely different 
from the visibility of 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 Russia, even 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 just the theoretical visibility. Uh, I don't really know why Russia is not a bigger technology player worldwide, but the fact is that they are not. Yes, I mean I I won't go too far into economic theory, but it, it's maybe an emphasis on commodity led you know exports being oil and gas in Russia versus mm. manufacturing led output um, for China, but. Uh, I did want to sidestep for a second. We'll return to cyber warfare in a moment. But you brought up the interesting point of uh, government relations between technology firms. Um, and there's an seems to be a new interesting trend. You brought up Microsoft, but we also had an incident with Google in which mm-hmm. um, the engineers and the software developers and the workers themselves are beginning to make their views known as to you know, to what degree they're willing to engage, for example, with military contracts. Um, yes. You know, they didn't want uh, HoloLens used for military uh, conflict training. Um, Google employees rebelled against the use of Google AI for Pentagon contracts. So I wonder if you had any thoughts on on the role that technology workers may play in, in defining um, how technology is used for conflict. I think this is closely tied to the rising power of this of the Silicon Valley companies themselves. They are getting bigger and bigger, and and their their influence is getting bigger and bigger. And they are becoming a force that the U.S. government itself has to reckon with. And and this means that employees, the people who build these companies, who who who, who create these companies as 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 employees, they they are starting to realize the power they have. And then it becomes an ethics question. Do we do we want to use our power for for good, or do we want to use for something that we actually don't agree with? And 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 those questions raised inside Google, of course, have been in the news. I'm sure there are similar questions uh, happening inside Facebook over you know what are we supposed to do with people's privacy, um, so, social media. And the companies that are building the, the search engines and social medias that we all use have a huge responsibility for our you know, privacy and security. And I think some of those employees within these companies are starting to ask the right questions on, on what exactly are they building. Yes, yes, good point. Yeah. Um, so let's return back to cyber warfare. So um so we just talked about APTs and cyber espionage and kind of the visibility and then also just the theft of IP. So um, we know this is happening uh, just about every week. There's a new report on either an APT group or some instance of uh, ransomware or IP theft. And yet I've, I find that when we go to talk to potential clients or customers, we still seem to be in a world where, quote unquote, proactive cybersecurity does not seem to be getting a lot of traction. Right. So we we see that people aren't really able to secure budgets unless they have a, de- a data breach that they can point to or something tangible to say, this is why we need budget. So we like the idea of proactive cybersecurity, but we can't really get the funds until we prove that we need it. But if we're doing our job well, they don't have anything to report. So what do you think it's going to take to shift business culture to to get to that proactive mindset? 
The problem we security people have is that when we do our work right, nothing happens, <laughs> which is <laughs> it's a little bit uh, it's a little bit hard to prove what you're doing. And I, I, I run into this regularly myself as I go and meet with our cl- uh, clients and customers. Very typically, we have a meeting with the leadership team, and typically it's the CFO who who picks up the budget and looks at the numbers and then asks me nasty questions about, hey, we we spend all this money every year into buying your security goods and services. Why do we spend all this money on you guys? Like, we have no security problems. (laughs) Well, yeah. (laughs) Yes, you're right. And I typically, you know, look around their meeting room pointing out how nice and clean and tidy it is and that means you can now fire your janitors and cleaners because you don't need them anymore <laughs> that's right that's a good point that's <laughs> good <laughs> but it is a very real problem companies they react when something bad happens i i always keep saying that today every company is a software company and if that really is true that would implicate that software security and cybersecurity and, and, and social media security should be a board-level topic. And, and I can tell you that right now it's not. Companies only think about this. They only bring in a CISO to a board-level meeting to do a briefing when something has happened or maybe when something really big is in the news, like WannaCry or something like that. And that's just not good enough. We, we must get out of the world where we only start building defenses after we run into a breach. It's like buying a fire insurance to your house after the house has burnt down. Right. <laughs> well, and I think, um, you know, a very contemporary example of this uh, idea of everyone being a software company would be Norsk Hydro, right? I mean, this is oh, yeah. a, mm-hmm. this is by all accounts, if you were talking to investors, stock analysts, this is a aluminum manufacturing company. And yet mm-hmm. this was uh, a ransomware that spread so quickly through its systems that it was able to shut down physical plants. Um, mm-hmm. And we just had a, a, there was also a hack on um, a Saudi oil refinery that specifically mm-hmm. targeted safety systems. Um, so that was a little bit more malicious than, than just looking for money. But yes, I think this is an interesting thought that every company needs to think of itself in some capacity as, as a software company. Sure, sure. You you think about any product. I don't know, cars. Like what are cars today? Yes, computer Data with wheels. Of, <laughs> that's exactly what it is. Or I don't know, a hotel, hotel chain. The success between an unsuccessful hotel chain and successful hotel chain is how good the chain is in digitalization. Every company is a software company. So this really isn't just something we keep repeating. This is a very real example on what's happening around you know, everywhere around us. Digitalization is changing the world. And this does mean that we have to take online security and online safety more and more more and more seriously. Yes. And I think if we, let me extend that a little bit. So we're talking about extended digitalization, digital transformation by any other name. So we have on the horizon, the big topic of the day, which is 5G, right? So 5G Mm. promises a lot both good and ill. Um, so in, so I don't want to get too far down the path of predictions, but in terms of cybersecurity, you know, is 5G going to just unleash a series of botnet attacks? I mean, we're talking about a network that may have virtually no lag and mm-hmm. we have more devices than ever connected to one another. Um, mm-hmm. What are the implications of that? 
Well, as a transport layer, it's like any other transport layer. The, the attacks themselves don't really typically matter on, on how do you distribute it, whether it's you know 2G, 3G, 4G, or any other network protocol. However, it, it does have massively large bandwidth. You can download a 4K movie in two seconds over over a good working 5G connection, which is just remarkable. Um, of course, that means that, for example, botnet attacks ha- have much more bandwidth to their disposal. But I think the real thing about 5G, which is going to hit us when it becomes commonplace, is the fact that as IoT devices are going to become more and more um, applying to not just smart Thing, but also stupid things. You know, home appliances, where the connectivity is not about bringing more features to the consumer, but more about collecting data to the manufacturers. 5G and other uh, new transfer protocols, for example, Sigfox protocol, means that the end user has no way of knowing which of the devices in his home are online. The reason they are online is not because of a feature to the consumer, so they don't need to tell the consumer that this thing is calling home, and the consumer can't block them from going to the internet because they are not going to the internet through the consumer's Wi-Fi. He can't mm-hmm. block them at the router. He can't just not tell the password to the toaster. The toaster will not need your password. It's going to go online with 5G or Sigfox 2 or you know, ZigBee 3 or whatever new protocol we are designing right right now. And and this is the thing that's going to bring this massive uh, IoT revolution really to our homes. It's not about the smart devices. With smart devices, you know that this smart TV that I bought, it's on the internet. You bought it because it's on the internet because Mm -hmm. you want to watch Netflix on your TV. But then when devices where you have no idea that they are actually on the internet or starting calling home. That's where we have the real problems. Yes, that sounds like a it's a a future battle to be waged over consent, right? It's mm-hmm. like do you, it's like the consent of information transfer or, or something about yes, if if your toaster is talking to some remote server and and you had no idea. Um, sure, and it, it it feels almost chuckle worthy. That why would a toaster talk to a server? Well, it wants to call home to tell where it is, where mm-hmm. where 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 are the customers, which city, which countries, which cities do we have more toasters in use? How often do people in Denmark toast? What kind of problems or or you know failures do we have? Should we advertise more in these cities? Now they know exactly how many users there are and how often do they use the products. This is valuable information. Of course, they want to collect it. Yes. What is the peak toasting time? Yeah. Well, I just wanted to know. Yes. <laughs> in, yes. in Copenhagen, what, what is <laughs> well, the time of day? That Exactly. But, and, and of course, for us end users, this isn't important, but it's important for the manufacturers. That's why they will do it. And they would do it already today if it would be cheap enough. It's still too expensive to put every single toaster online, mm-hmm. but in 5, 10, 15 years, it's going to be so cheap that it's going to happen, and it won't be over Wi-Fi. Right. Yes, good point. I think I think that was uh, – I think when we talk about the Internet of Things, the public assumes it's an Internet like we have now rather than a mm. kind of a true Internet, which is just interconnected uh, devices and not necessarily over your router. And there's one more thing which people typically miss about IoT risks. Um, I mean, they, they might get that you know their smart TV or smart fridge 
might be hackable. But a very typical reaction is that, yeah, my fridge might be hackable, but I don't care. It's just a fridge. Like even if it gets hacked, it's just a fridge. I don't care. The goddamn fridge. Um, and that's not really what's what's at risk here. The attackers are not interested in the fridge. The hackers are interested in the network behind yes. the fridge. And in most networks, it's the IoT devices which are the weakest link in the network. We see this in corporate environments. Mm-hmm. We the, see this in home environments as well. Yes. Okay. Yeah. It's it is the the crown jewels aren't the thing. It's the connectedness behind the thing. Right. Correct. What you're highlighting is the education awareness that we need to be talking about before the toasters come online. <laughs> <laughs> Rise of the toaster. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and this has been a long time coming. I mean, many of the IoT security issues that we've, we've analyzed. Um, well, some of them are actual vulnerabilities on the devices themselves, but some of them are users misconfiguring devices or mm-hmm. users just not configuring their devices at all. They don't read the manual. They don't change the default passwords. They don't segment the network. They do none of this. And and that really is an education problem. Users should be directed to do the right thing. We shouldn't assume that they will read the manual because they won't. Right. Yeah, you have to lower that uh, threshold quite dramatically Mm -hmm. or, Mm -hmm. you know, by default, uh, the settings need to be yes. uh, configured properly. Yeah. Um, okay, so we'll, let's uh, move on from devices um, and that connectedness. So I wanted to uh, sort of circle around to social media, which is where we do most of our work um, mm-hmm. as a as a transmission layer or, or a transport layer. So we had not Petya a few years ago. We have WannaCry, we have Grand Crab. We have all sorts of ransomware that's still being primarily spread um, through malicious links, mostly through emails that have been socially engineered. There's an argument to be made that you can use social media to build the profile to socially engineer somebody. But do mm-hmm. you see a future in which um, some sort of grand virus, and I use that term uh, hesitantly because I I don't want it to be synonymous with like the viruses of the 90s, Um, Mm. but some sort of malicious software spreading through social, which has just sort of massive scale and scope um, in terms of how fast things can spread. We've seen it with misinformation, but do you see a future in Mm -hmm. which it's an actual malicious software spreading through social? Yeah, this is really a question on on what are the motives of the attackers. Like, if if someone really wanted to build an automated social media worm, which would go haywire and have a massively large global outbreak, that actually wouldn't be too hard. It, it, it's totally doable with today's networks. Um, why we aren't seeing more of that is that that's not what today's attackers want to do. If you create a massively large global outbreak, like the kind of outbreaks that we used to see, used to see in email worms and things like that, um, what you do get is, is massive visibility. You will become front page news. You will be on CNN. Your attack will be, everybody will be talking about your attack. And that's not what 
criminals want. Criminals don't want to highlight their crimes. They don't want to be on the front page of, of New York Times. If they end up on the front page of the New York Times, or if their attack ends up on the front page of the New York Times, they've failed. And this is the reason why most of today's attacks are, are controlled and throttled and kept below the horizon on purpose, because the attackers don't want it to become too large. And, and this is what we are seeing today. It's, it's not a technological limitation. It's, it's a question of will. Most of today's attackers don't want to create massively large outbreaks, even though they could. Oh, that's a good point. Yes. I, if you recall, like sort of the fanfare of hackers getting caught in the 90s, you know, in, mm-hmm. in jumpsuits being brought to trial. I mean, mm-hmm. they, they left signatures behind. It was almost like graffiti tagging. It was it sure. was a novel and new technology. So they wanted to be caught. I mean, some of them even like embedded signatures in the source code. <laughs> Um, True, but yes, I think that's a good point. That it's it is now more sophisticated, so that the motivations of the attackers have changed. Which is, if you're trying yeah. to make money, then you do so in as covert a way as possible. That's exactly the question. It's it's not a technical restriction at all. Technically, you could do it. Okay, that's good. And so now let's uh, shift a little bit in terms of when we're talking about new technology, I think something that has come to mind, particularly uh, for us, um, since we're dealing with social media so frequently, is um, what Otavio refers to as the rise of live, right? And we saw this to devastating effect with the Christchurch massacre. Um, You know, something that is gives everyone the ability to broadcast. And now let's couple that with the idea of 5G. No filter. Um, mm-hmm. And it was an absolute technological disaster in terms of being able to mitigate it, right? I mean, we're talking online for 11 minutes before Facebook can do anything. And by the time they've done it, it's already been replicated mm-hmm. uh, ad infinitum. Yeah, which was so, so bad but so so easy to see that it's going to happen and 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 this is um one of the things that really brings home the fact that internet was not the dream world we thought it would be when it when it was shown to us originally in in the in the early 1990s when we remember going online for the first time or going into a multi multi-user chat or forum where you could speak with people from all over the world and and internet felt felt like utopia mm-hmm. this great new world where you can now be in direct connection with anyone on the planet and it's going to be great it's going to take away our problems well no it did not it it wasn't Utopia. It wasn't a dream. It's getting closer and closer to nightmare, where now wars are being fought online, where online crime gangs can run rampant across the world with no geographical limitations, where uh, people who have become so dependent on their social media feeds that they sit 24 hours clicking the refresh button on Facebook, and yes, where madmen are able to stream mass murder live on Facebook Live. This is the world where we are today. And 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 we are giving these very powerful tools in the hands of all the people. Well, not all people are sane. Not all people are, are, are you know, behaving like we assume them mm-hmm. to behave. And this is the outcome of that. And filtering this and, and trying to block all this is is really a nightmare and it's only going to get worse for example the rise of deep fakes this gan network created fake video content how do you 
algorithmically tell the difference between a real video and a deep fake video is one of the core problems we have to solve if we want to be able to filter you know horrible content that we need to filter away from from social networks yeah and so wow well yeah we're we're coming up on time so i do want to end on a note <laughs> of hope um you know i think we're optimistic that you know we're trying to empower our, our clients to to not just do hard defense but you know, very mm-hmm. proactive defense. So given where you are, not geographically, but in the industry, you've, you've been um, at the forefront for a while. You're part of the Vanguard. You're in it. You're, you're, you probably are living two years in the future, at least from the average internet user. So given, oh, given, oh God, I, I hope not. <laughs> given uh, your stance, do you, what gives you the most hope? Well, uh, I'm I'm every day happy that I that I'm alive right now, alive right now during these defining years. I mean, we are the first people on the internet, and yes, the internet has problems. Yes, the internet has created tons of new risks. Um, but when you look at the upside, when you look at all the great things internet internet has brought to us, it is the best thing ever. I, I love the internet. I, I think I both love and hate the internet, but there's much more good than bad on the internet. Just like I think there's much more good uh, than bad in, in 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 humans. So when you look at all the business, all the connectivity, all the entertainment that the internet has brought us, I wouldn't change it for the world. And I'd like to think that this will apply to other new innovations as well. For example, I'd like to think that in, I don't know, 20 years, we can look back to the, the first 20 years of IoT and we could say the same thing, that yes, IoT, uh, it, it you know exposed us to new kinds of risks, but it also brought so much good things that you know it, it evens out. There's more good than bad. Mm-hmm. So I, I do believe in technology. I do believe you know there's more good than bad. And I do believe good will prevail. All right on. Um, all right. Well, we will we will stop with one last question, and I'll turn our attention to more analog technology. <laughs> um, you have an affinity for pinball machines. Oh, yes, I do. So <laughs> what I'm sure our listeners are dying to know, and us as well, what is your favorite pinball machine? If you had to pick one. <laughs> oh, well, that is a tough question, isn't it? Um, I, I guess, well, there's multiple ways of looking at this. I am a big pinball fan. I, I, I love playing. I was just playing last night at the local pub. I, uh, I spent like, I don't know, two hours trying to make a high score and I <laughs> failed. Uh, I guess one of my favorite pinballs is a pinball called Humpty Dumpty from 1940s, I believe 1943 or 44. And it's not a really good pinball to play but it is historic because fun fact they were manufacturing pinballs in chicago where most pinballs are made even today they were making pinballs in chicago for a decade until they invented the flippers humpty dumpty was the first pinball with the flippers and buttons that Whoa. you could press to actually flip the ball so what which was totally the point? changed you just had to pull the, the <laughs> stick and then it was like out of your control it was just like where yes. the ball lands unless you kicked yes. the machine <laughs> 
they weren't very popular because it wasn't much fun until they invented the flippers. Yes, I, but I, yes. I, yes, I appreciate it when it's the, the most minor of technological innovations that completely changes something. You know, so it's That's like, right. what would pinball be without? I didn't even know that it existed before flippers. That seems entirely yes. useless yes. to me. But what an innovation! Yes. Yes. So, yeah, my favorite pinball, Humpty Dumpty. Thanks for changing the industry. All right. Okay. That's fantastic. That is fantastic. Well, thank you again very much for taking the time. We won't uh, interrupt your um, fully sunlit evening anymore. Um, It was good talking with you, Miko. Thank you again for taking the time. And thank you very much. Thank you. Take care now. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I mean, there's really no point in trying to punctuate the end of that interview with anything other than that. I I think it's a great pleasure and very helpful to talk with people who have been in cybersecurity for so long that they take a long view of what are commonly, I think, interpreted as fads um, or like latest developments, but they're able to contextualize it into these larger security trends. Um, but let's turn our attention now to the news. So, uh, big news last week was Facebook co-founder Chris Hughes taking out a rather high profile op-ed in the New York times, uh, calling specifically for the breakup of the Facebook family, which includes Instagram and WhatsApp. There are many conversations circulating this week, thinking about how that would really work. But when you think about it from the perspective of a business, you've invested all of these dollars uh, adopting these new channels to to drive your business and, and advertise. What would that look like if they were to break up? Yeah, and I'm sure the, the debate will continue to rage on. And then visiting another part of the Facebook family, um, news breaking late last night um, as of this recording around a new vulnerability discovered by WhatsApp developers. Um, I believe it was a buffer overflow, but it basically allowed a spyware to be installed via the voice calling feature in WhatsApp. And even more insidiously, you didn't have to answer the call for the spyware code to be injected uh, in that memory overflow. So they have since patched it. Everyone should update their WhatsApp uh, applications in the App Store or Google Play. Um, But I think it really highlights the security challenges for these new channels. We as a business have seen more and more of our clients adopting WhatsApp for business. Um, And a lot of it is us educating them that these new channels, despite end-to-end encryption, still require some defenses against traditional cyber threats such as data loss and insider threats. Um, But I'm sure this story will continue to evolve and we will continue to keep up with it. As ever, we thank Abby Bruce for production and Mattia Cefaletti for our theme music. If you like what you heard today, give us a subscribe, uh, give us a rating, give us some comments. We'd love to hear from you. Um, But in the meantime, stay safe and we will talk to you in two weeks. 